HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Culture City, a for-purpose organization that provides a place of acceptance and support for all autism families. For more information, visit culturecity.org. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen, a cooking store located at 100 Frost Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Feast Your Ears. And if anybody's curious, the song that is my intro and outro music is a song called Pain Hollow Stomp by a band called Sapat. Today, in the studio with me, is Bill Skanga. Bill is the president of the City Reliquary, which is a museum located here in Williamsburg. It's on Metropolitan Avenue near Havemeyer, and uh, it's one of my favorite museums in the city. Welcome, Bill. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Great to be here. Um, can you introduce yourself and talk a little bit about uh, what you do inside and outside of the city reliquary? Uh, my name is Bill Skanga. I live in Brooklyn, New York, and I run this small museum called the City Reliquary. Uh, reliquary, you know, holder of relics, just another way of saying museum, really. Kind of a nice way to say it. Uh, it's New York City history, objects, ephemera, kind of, you know, I, it's very much about the unsung hero. It's kind of the... The lesser artifact, you know, things that, you know, aren't going to be in one of the big museums at the City Reliquary and things that celebrate New York City and our lives here. I personally love the City Reliquary. Um, it it speaks to me as someone who grew up around stuff. Uh, my father was a collector and I sort of, uh, I guess I have it in my genes. I don't know if that's something that you inherit uh, in that way, but I have a record collection. I collect antique things. My dad is a firefighter, collects antique firefighting things, and the reliquary has really a great collection of things that, like Bill says, you wouldn't see in other museums. They have a huge collection of seltzer bottles, 
from New York and from Brooklyn. They have a huge collection of pieces of stone and rock representing all of the different geologic uh, formations that exist in New York City. Um, they have a collection of statues of liberty of all various sizes and shapes. And uh, it's really a fun place. I mean, how many items do you guys have? Do you know? I don't, I'm not like a counter collector. You know, I'm the, you know, I have the collecting gene, too. I don't actually believe that it's a gene, but... Uh, I've got it. And there's different kinds of collectors. I'm not one of the counting ones. Like, so I've, I love to be surrounded with stuff. You know, it's definitely like, uh, the effect we're going for. You walk into the reliquary and, you know, you're kind of bombarded with all this stuff. Um, but I'm not one of those like counters, you know, I like, I like things organized. I like things in the right place. I'm very, where it's very much about the, how things are displayed and how things are presented more than counting. Cool. Uh, there's lots. millions. There's, there's lots. millions. Millions of little things to yes. see at the reliquary. I encourage everyone to visit. What are the hours when are you guys open? We are noon to six, Thursday through Sunday. And what is your exact address? 370 Metropolitan Avenue in the Williamsburg section of Brooklyn. Great. Everybody should definitely definitely go check it out. How did you come to be involved? Did you start? Did you found the reliquary? I am a co-founder. We have a founder. I am a co-founder. So there was this guy named Dave Herman, uh, firefighter, retired firefighter now. He got out of art school and turned his apartment windows into this museum. Um, early on, I became a big fan and was like, wow, this is great. This guy's got a museum in his apartment. You know, it looked like it was an apartment. It turned out to just the windows. Um, and that was at the corner of Grand and Havemeyer. Right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. So I became a big fan of this very small museum. We started curating sh- exhibitions together in this, you know, space that was four feet by four feet by, you know, nine inches deep or things. So we started kind of curating shows and finding people that collected things to show their collections. And then we started hosting events in the street and, you know, it was growing, you know, it was sort of, you know, su- it was very successful, you know, how we decided to measure success differently, but, uh, it was very successful, and we grew into this space, and we've developed this museum. We've been in the space we are now for ten years, kind of developing and growing as it's as it's grown, as it's as we age. And you guys have sort of a, a set collection, like many museums, and then you have an area for exhibitions that changes a couple times a year. Uh, yeah, we're I think we're four times a year, three or four times a year right now for the temporary exhibits. Uh, we currently have a show up about the uh, Senzi brothers, uh, some brothers, some veterans of the World War of World War One, who grew up in the Williamsburg neighborhood. Uh, and you guys have done over the past couple of years. I mean, just off the top of my head, some of my favorites. There was a pizza box. Uh, we just took exhibit. down uh, Scott Weiner's uh, a, sec, a, a selection of his. Uh, Guinness Book of World Records pizza box collection. Yeah, Scott's a really amazing pizza-obsessive guy. And then you guys had a really, uh, I, I thought, a really interesting bicycle, New York City bicycling history Yeah, we did a couple bike shows. What was the last one? The last one was the Dick Powers show. Yeah, with uh, those handmade bikes from Queens. Yeah, a uh, builder named Dick Powers, hilarious name. Uh, yeah, the, a friend of ours, I mean, he's become a friend of ours, collects uh, these, these bicycles. He's written the story. Uh, so we kind of develop it into an exhibit, get some of the bikes on display, kind of take some of his writing and develop it into this display. Those are, that was a great show. Those are great bikes. And as a, uh, in the back of the reliquary, I was there a few weeks ago for the sugar sweets festival, which if you missed it, you should check it out next year. Bake uh, sale on steroids. Yeah. That's a good way to describe it. I think yeah. bake sale and 
face painting and the reliquary is open to the public and it's a big fundraiser that they do every year and there's for the past i don't know year or two i guess there's there's been this grotto kind of growing in the backyard that's your work right mostly yeah i mean there's the whole reliquary is a group effort very much you know uh I've put a lot of uh, sweat and love into that grotto. Yes, uh, yeah, you love the like the grotto. I, I love I love the grotto. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to, to to give a brief description of the grotto, um, and it really, I mean, I think that really is the it it is like a grotto in sort of the traditional sense, where it, it sort of has a, a highlight, except that it's not about the Virgin Mary; it's about the Statue of Liberty. Yes, um, it a has a secular a, grotto. Yeah, exactly, it, it has a cast iron tub upended with a statue of liberty about i don't know what is she like three and a half feet tall back there yeah, she's probably exactly three and a half <laughs> feet tall <laughs> uh and uh and she's sort of the centerpiece but then the grotto like all great grottos is sort of growing out from there and has come to include new york's date license plates and yeah, she, wine bottles and she very much started you know uh our founder developed that this kind of idea as this secular saint you know the secular saint of new york city's harbor and really you know he he was in the reliquary you know it kind of fits in with that too you know reliquary is this term often used by catholics the saving of the the bones or the artifacts exactly yeah. So it comes from that, this secular saint, the Statue of Liberty, this this thing. So, you know, the bathtub, the lawn ornament, you flip the bathtub on its side and you've got a you've got an instant grotto. You know, you see the Virgin Mary in the half shell or whatever they call it. So we, we got this tubs. So we were doing tub gardens and we flipped one on its side and put some bricks around it and started mixing up patches of cement, like you said, just sort of growing. But it's also inspired by this kind of, you know, this outsider artist grotto as well. There's a really great one in Staten Island. Uh, oh, our Lady of Mount Carmel Grotto in Staten Island, which is it's also inspired by this it's Italian pebble work. These old Italian guys mixing up concrete and their time off. You know the aesthetic of the reliquary is very much this kind of uh, this old man working away. So the grotto kind of fits into that. Sure, it reminds me. I went to a grotto years ago, and I have no idea what town it was in. I was a kid. It was in Iowa, uh-huh. and it was like in a cave. And this guy had spent you know forty or fifty years making it and yeah it's a famous one yeah. yeah i don't know what it's called but yeah and then there's the corn palace every year that's sort of similar but is a different kind of thing have you been to the corn palace i have it's a cool it's very cool i mean it's a giant building that they nail corn cobs to every year and the patterns are always different they change it every year right? yeah yeah it's uh, very much inspired by that this outsider artist this you know uh someone making art that doesn't necessarily know about art there's this inspiration there's this love behind it uh yeah, but there's there's a couple down south, right? Often concrete. Yep. Um, you work you work in a sort of related field in the art world, right? When you're not president yes. of the reliquary. Yeah, but don't tell anybody that. Okay, we don't have to talk about that. Okay. Last week was really the art show. This <laughs> keep can be, it cool. This can yeah. be different. This keep can be cool about that all art thing. Yeah. Old, old New York stuff. Um, it seems to me in the past few years that the reliquary has. Uh, gotten really good at finding some really cool restaurant signage yeah we've got we've got this great new board member this guy ben wiggler uh he's obsessed with neon neon signs right now uh we're f- it's also another friend this guy kyle supley the guy who's brought us our 39 world's fair collection is uh involved with save nyc um he years ago he was involved in uh helping save the uh the moon dance diner down on uh, mm. Where is it? Like Houston and Bleecker and Sixth Avenue, right? Yep. Yeah. Where was it? Right. Uh, so he got us a the eat sign that we have that's up and lit in the backyard now from that from the Moon Dance Diner, and 
every once in a while he'll give us a call and say, uh, you know, there's a sign here. I've talked to the owner. You know, they're happy to get rid of it if you guys can come get it or – uh, yeah, so we've got, and then we've got uh, Ben, this new board member who's been really excited about the neon. So he's definitely like pushing for this neon collection. So it's pretty, it's some great things. There's um, Subway Inn moved. We all know this. Uh, they did a great job preserving it in the new location, building a beautiful new bar. Uh, they did a great job moving the original sign. Hmm. Uh, there was one sign that they left behind above it that just says bar. Uh, so Kyle made some few calls and we had an opportunity to get that sign. So we're pretty excited about that. Working on restoring a beautiful blue enamel underneath some old coats of paint and we'll put some new neon in it. It's pretty excited about it. Cool. And then you guys also have the sign, uh, a piece of the sign from the second Avenue deli, the original one. Yeah, that one, again, that was through Kyle as well. Uh, they took the original second Avenue deli sign. They decided to throw the sign in a dumpster. Uh, Such a great, like, New York story, right? I mean, great stuff comes off the street all the time in New York. Yeah, and ends up in dumpsters, right? Yeah. Uh, this uh, a guy, I don't even know who he is, uh, somebody, uh, through someone, through Kyle, uh, decides that he probably should save this thing, you know, pays the construction workers 100 bucks or so, gets his van, fits Second Avenue in there, can't really fit Delhi in the van, doesn't quite fit, Um puts it up on ebay for thousands of dollars uh luckily we were able to convince him to sort of loan it to us great and it's on display we're really proud of it it's one of the great things in the collections that it's really fun to go in there i mean anybody who remembers that location and that space to walk into the reliquary off metropolitan avenue and then see the second avenue deli sign brings back memories that, not not uh, quite as famous but i i had a real flood of memories when i walked into the backyard and saw the sign from the yaffa cafe which was a real haunt of mine when I first moved to the city. Yeah, a lot of people, I think, what does somebody say? It's of, of a certain age. Yeah. yeah. So Yaffa just closed. Um, again, Kyle, uh, involved in the Save NYC, were involved in with it, and they said, sure, come get the sign. Cool. So we went over there with a hacksaw and I called an Uber and got the sign. I'm really excited about that, actually, yeah. Do you have your sights set on any other signs around the city? Like, have you have you walked by? I mean, I remember there was a sign, not restaurant related, but mm-hmm. there was a great sign that used to be off Fourth Avenue and like Union that was in like a manufacturing building. It looked all like space age. And There's that like, Girdles Bakery. You know that one? That one's a great one in, yeah. in Fort Greene. Uh, uh, you know, I feel it's it's I'm mixed about it. You know, this is like I feel like some grave robber. You know, like you know, ah, oh, this great business closed. Oh, I'm gonna get the sign. You know, like. Uh, it's, you know, not, but if, not, but if the alternative is that it's just going to go to a landfill in Delaware somewhere, like New Jersey, like then, absolutely. you know, I think that, I think that there's sort of two sides to that I agree, mm-hmm. uh, you know, somebody was telling me when I was talking about the signs at the reliquary, um, and I, I haven't been to LA in years, but that there's some kind of city ordinance out there that, uh, old signs have to stay with their buildings if they're from ah, a certain era. So ah, you end up with nice. all of these, you know, businesses existing under signage that's unrelated. There's historical preservation in LA. That's what someone Are said. Sure I, I have, that? I haven't done any research on it. Yeah, I, I, I didn't ask, hard I didn't ask the internet. <laughs> I find that very hard to believe. Uh, do you have a, do you have a favorite collection in the reliquary or a favorite object that you think really like is the pinnacle of the relic you know some museums might say that a certain painting or a certain sculpture is like their thing the, the i mean that second avenue sign is is hits people 
you know, it, it's it's not my favorite, but it's the thing that's really people, you know, walk into the room, turn around, and go, whoa, oh my gosh, like, where'd you get this thing? Uh, what is our, like, our prize collection, our Mona Lisa or something? Right. Or what's your favorite? Yeah. Uh, God, what is my favorite thing? I don't know. I love that place. I mean, it's very much a, a project of passion. You know, I'm like I'm sort of in love with it. It's like my, you know, my wife is jealous and sort of my mistress. Uh, so, you know, uh, you know, I love the place. There's a lot of things I love about it. I mean, I love that grotto right now a lot. You know, it's kind of my favorite back there, gluing rocks slowly to pouring concrete and stacking ricks on top of each other, hoping they don't fall over and hurt some kid. Uh, you know, that Jackie Robinson role, you know, that's it. That, there's, there's, there's these great stories. I mean, there's, there's to tell about New York city history and there's these great stories that we that need to be told and sure. they be told every day in our lives. You know, I walk by Ebbets field all the time, every day. And, do I really know that Jackie Robinson story? I mean, it's it's important for us to tell those stories. Absolutely, and especially important to tell them to the next the next generation. I mean, yeah, you know, we have you and I have daughters the same age, and so I think that it's really interesting to see them in that space and see what they're looking at. My daughter loves the uh, the dancing girl, the hula little, girl, Little Egypt. She's amazing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, she's great. Every little girl loves Little Egypt. I hope. I, I mean. Can you can you talk for a second about about Little Egypt Li- and who she was? Uh, the real Little Egypt, yeah. the reliquaries Little Egypt. Little Egypt was a uh, a burlesque dancer. She was very very made famous in the Chicago World's Fair. What was, like was that like turn of the century? No, eighteen nineties, I think. Is right, it, yeah. the Chicago Exposition. I think yeah. so. You know, uh, very much a celebration of the exotic. You know, it's this woman from Egypt. You know. Uh, Burlesque dancer, very, very risque. Uh, her dance was the Hoochie Coochie. Um, she was famous. She made her way to Coney Island. She made her way to New York City. Uh, we, we wanted to incorporate some of that Coney Island burlesque history into the reliquaries, so uh, we, we built this display that's a push-button automated uh, uh, automaton who shakes her hips and uh she has a song the end of the song it's called like uh the streets of cairo i think is the name of the song that was her song so you push the button and the song plays and it's a piece of one-way glass right oh yeah yeah so you look into this locker there's a mirror you press a button and she lights up the lights go out in the locker and lights go on behind this mirror and there she is behind the mirror doing the hula yeah dave dave build her not the hula the hoochie coochie she was, I think she was designed as a hula girl, but we we just give her a little makeover. Cool. Yeah, she's she's a she's a really fun. Yeah, she's that push button stuff is great. You know, that's that the stuff that we remember from the museums when we were kids. You know, this you, you, even my daughter now, like you, we go to the transit museum and she'll push any button that's there. You know, like if we love that that tactile display stuff is really. Yeah, kids are really are really drawn to that. It's interesting to see now that a lot of those things have become, you know, we spend a lot of time at the Brooklyn Museum uh, in the winter when the weather's bad, actually. My, my two-year-old, Frank, learned to walk in the uh, Egypt uh-huh. collection because when the weather was bad, we would just drive to the museum because that way he could run around because he couldn't go to the playground. It's like and, people in the burbs go to the mall. Exactly. Whatever. We go to the museum. Mm. Uh, but, you know, they have some great stuff there now. There's a visible storage area at the yeah, yeah, museum. Somewhere. It's really cool, but it's all iPads. Which is neat. I was going to say, my daughter just sat in front of that stupid iPad the whole time. I was so mad. I was like, look at this cool thing over here. She's like scrolling through the iPad. I'm like, oh, get away from the fucking iPad. If there was buttons, you could push and it would highlight the things. It might be a little. Yeah, it would definitely like, yeah. 
But the, uh, the, the iPad will just be their uh, thing of the their yeah. button of their adult. Yeah, totally for sure. There's no um, iPads in the city reliquary yet. Not yet. Good. Although we're talking about it. Are you? Yeah. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and we're going to hear from some of the sponsors here at Heritage. But uh, when we come back, uh, Bill and I will talk some more about food and life and stuff. This is Dave Arnold from Cooking Issues, and I'm here to talk to you about the Museum of Food and Drink, which is finally getting a brick-and-mortar space right here in Brooklyn, New York. So the Museum of Food and Drink is opening the MOFAD Lab, our first laboratory and gallery space, where we will be putting on an exhibition called Making It or Faking It, the History of the Flavor Industry. It tackles a very important uh, topic, which is how the food system got to be the way it is now uh, as a result of the intervention of the flavor industry, how that happened. Get your tickets at tickets.mofad.org to come see the first exhibit ever of the Museum of Food and Drink at the MOFAD Lab, brought to you by Infinity on 62 Bayard Street. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Culture City, a for-purpose organization that provides a place of acceptance and support for all autism families. This is Culture City's founder, Julian Maha. Culture City was really born out of uh, necessity. You know, it was born when my, uh, you know, currently six-year-old boy was diagnosed with autism. Uh, his name is Abram and he's non-verbal. And even though my wife and I were both physicians at the time, it was really hard for us to find any resources at that point to help him. All the other organizations out there that we know of, um, they do phenomenal work, but their main focus is basically finding a cure for autism. Our main focus is basically trying to prepare the community to accept not only children with autism, but their families as well. You know, in addition to that, we also want to provide help to these families in the here and now. You know, so tangible things like, you know, iPads for non-verbal kids, you know, financial scholarships, uh, therapy scholarships, you know, art camps, and also some um, lecture series that can teach parents about, you know, dietary issues, um, you know, how to financially plan and things like that. For more information, visit culturecity.org. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum. With me today is Bill Skanga, president of the City Reliquary. Thanks again, Bill, for taking time out of your Wednesday to come out here to Bushwick behind Roberta's and sit with me in the studio. Yes, this is weird. There's a radio station in the back of Roberta's, everybody. It's very strange. It's kind of like being in a fishbowl because there's like people eating right now. But they're not looking at us. We're not looking at, at them. We are. So they're the fishbowl and we are. Actually. That's a good point, actually. Yeah. yeah. It's like we're divers, right? Like we're at the bottom of the ocean looking out at them yeah. or something. One of those glass bottom boats. <laughs> um, so as you might imagine, whenever I'm preparing to interview someone, uh, even if I already know them, I Googled you. Hope you don't mind. Oh. And uh, I wanted to know about um, taxidermied mice. Can you... Uh, there, there's a whole new group of young kids taxidermied mice <laughs> over at the Morbid Anatomy Museum, another great museum in New York. Have you been over there yet? I haven't. I should. Uh, me neither. But where it, is it? 
uh, Gowanus sort of area. Nice. So it's from that Proteus Gowanus, I think. Comes out, stems from that. Cool. It's you know, it's the Goth kids have their own museum. Yep. I shouldn't say any of this. Um, uh, there's taxidermy classes going on. I noticed they're doing some anthropomorphic mice classes. Oh, yeah. nice. Uh, I used to be an artist. I used to be a sculptor, and uh, I made a s- sculpture with some taxidermy mice. Um, Did you taxidermy them yourself? No, I didn't. I just paid some guy to do it. Taxidermy's really gross. Yeah, I mean, there's, we're in the studio here. There's a taxidermied boar. Yeah, there. he looks great, but ripping like that boar's brain out of his skull was probably disgusting. Yeah, I guess it's kind of like butchering. A That's bit. true. You, right. Yeah, you're involved in that, aren't you? A <laughs> <laughs> little bit, a little bit. Um, and... Uh, so you paid someone to taxidermy these mice. Um, yeah, they were freeze dried. I think you kind of rip their guts out and stuff them with something and stick them in a freeze dryer. And were your were your taxidermied mice anthropomorphized? Yes, they. Were. So the I was I fell in love with the Hudson Valley River painters. Uh, there's some beautiful rooms at the Met uh, Church and Olmstead and uh, who are the other ones? Bierstadt and. Uh, those beautiful paintings, uh, landscape, American landscape paintings. Uh, so I recreated some of those rooms in miniature and, and have oh, the rooms at the museum. Yeah. And inhabited them with mice. So it was mice looking at this stuff and it's, and the, the reliquary very much stems from this cause I was talking about display and how things are displayed and how we look at things and museums. It was the rooms at the museum. I like to, I like the idea of, of the museum itself having mice that live there, right. Who come out at night and sit there and like observe the paintings yeah this was there was a zoo that had a Stuart little kind of yeah yeah <laughs> night at the museum yeah yeah i just read Stuart little with moxie i don't know if you like all of it but we're, we're starting chapter books so uh speaking of uh, our children i mean my my daughter is named moxie after a beverage america's first soda bitter uh, soda yeah and uh, your daughter is named olive why uh, why olive uh, it's not like a family, you know, like, uh, it's not like a family name. It's just a nice name and it is a food. You know, we were also thinking about the other, our other food name was rocket, which is what the Brits yeah. call arugula. Yeah. A boy, our boy was going to be named rocket. So I'm glad we had a girl. If Moxie had been a boy, be a she would have been named Reuben. Reuben like the like sandwich, the sandwich because, uh, Taylor was, uh, she was eating Reuben's every day yeah. during that pregnancy. That's a great time to eat Reuben's. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, are there any other food names in your family? No. No. What are the names in my family? No, we're all named after like friends. Yeah. And things like that. We didn't. We had a dog named Whiskey when I was a kid. Uh-huh. That. Uh, so my entire concept of whiskey when I was a kid was that it was a dog's name, not that it was an adult beverage. <laughs> and uh, only came to find out later that it was because my parents adopted the dog from a lady who was a drunk, yeah. and whiskey was her drink of choice. So yeah. she named her dog after her favorite drink. Wait, you got the dog with the name? Yeah, dog came with the name. Uh-huh. Sometimes, you know, sometimes that happens. It's a good way of disguising alcoholism. Yeah. <laughs> um, Come here, whiskey. Before the show, we were talking about, uh, so for anyone who's listening to this uh, now or, or later, it happens to be October 21st, 2015, and uh-huh. there's been a lot of discussion this year already, um, but I guess today apparently is the day that uh, Michael J. Fox arrives in the future in Back to the Future 2, and there's been all these comparisons about like things that exist, and we were talking earlier about iPads changing changing museum displays and yes um 
I don't have a clear memory of watching that movie except for the self-tying shoes because I thought that would be really cool to have. <laughs> I don't think uh, I've ever seen it. Which I don't think that we have now. Uh, you know, we definitely have uh, drones and things like that. Is there anything that you as a kid expected that would exist in the future that we now have or don't have? Oh, gosh. What don't we have that we're supposed to have? I don't know. When I was a kid, I feel like MTA I, should be better. I know that. <laughs> yeah, for absolutely. A fact. Yeah, for sure. Well, <laughs> levitating trains, I feel like everybody was proposing those. And there really? are a couple, but they're not really. Am I allowed to curse? I say, like, you can curse. We kind of fucked that one up. Yeah, so. I think so. Public transit thing. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously problematic. And I think the, the, the idea um, behind the the DeLorean that could travel through time. If I, I think in that, I don't know if it was in the first back to the future, the second one where doc shows up and they're pouring like garbage into it. I think like a banana peel or something. Yeah. I feel like I thought that cars would be running on that stuff. And you know, we do have like veggie oil, like diesel, but now, you know, gas is so cheap. Yeah. Nobody cares. So the renewable energy thing, I think we have a long way to come to get to the vision that was set forth. Yeah, we totally. In 1985. We gave up. Somebody, yeah, we fucked that up. That was that's a giant mistake. Yeah, yeah, and the, like we've now when we talk about the environment, we talk like, oh, it's too late. Like that is <laughs> yeah, we're totally me. defeatist, right? Like I'm like, oh my god, I have a daughter. Like I can't. Yeah. Like, like we've given up. Oh, like come on. There was like 10 years ago, we still had hope, but now it's done. It's too late. Have you noticed it's kind of changed? In that I have. Right? I have noticed that. I mean, yeah. I I think it's. I think it's interesting. It, it seems to me to stem from a position of um, almost fad-ish like cycles. I think that things like that go in cycles, and I think that unfortunately, and this is something I feel like I feel like my mom warned me about this. Talk about the future, right? I feel like my mom, my parents were, you know, always kind of progressive and involved in a lot of progressive politics and and, and things. And I feel like at some point, my mother warned me about how people get complacent as they get older. And they get, you know, they get a little more money and they, yeah. you know, sort of get a little more comfortable. And I feel like that's, I'm, I'm watching that happen to a certain oh, you're extent. You're not turning into a Republican, are you, Harry? Getting, no, I, I don't think I'm, some I, gray I hope hair that, hope that I'm not getting complacent. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, it, you know, it also, I feel like at a certain point, right, you know, and I, I, I will say that I feel a little bit, you know, a little bit browbeaten, right, by like the world and the political system, like. You know, I feel like we were lucky the last two elections. I got to vote for somebody that I actually did think would be a good president. But before that, I mean, as a, you know, the first election I voted in, I felt like, why am I doing this? I'm going yeah. you know, we're going to lose. And then, then what? I don't, need, I don't actually get to make a choice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of people that still think that, right? I mean, still a problem, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right. I don't want to talk about politics. No, no, let's, let's not do that. Yeah. Um, what's your pet peeve? Related to food. Food pet peeve. It's a scooped out bagel. Scooped out bagel. Yes, I come from Philadelphia, and you don't order things like a scooped out bagel in Philadelphia. That would be ridiculous. Do you order cream cheese? Yes. But I don't order, I don't specify how much cream cheese. I would just say a bagel with cream cheese. I wouldn't I say a scooped out bagel. I feel like if we're talking about cream cheese. bagels specifically, I often find that there's like a... I don't there's like a reverse curve with the amount of cream cheese. Like if you ask for cream cheese and you just get way too much, it's not like it's not an, it's not a good experience. I personally, I mean I like cream cheese, but I don't need like 3 quarters of an inch or an inch of cream cheese. So like the quantity does not more cream cheese is not better. Right. It, yeah. yeah, the value proposition is not really there. I mean, I yeah. guess I could take it home and save it for my next bagel like at home, but scoop it out. No. 
I just, I'm amazed that when someone orders a scooped out bagel, like, and then the guy does it, I'm like, really? You're going to scoop this bagel out of this person? Like, really? This is really that, happening I right here? I think that, that, though, represents, that's customer service, right? I mean, yes. you got to give the customer what they want. You want them to come back tomorrow, even if they come back tomorrow and order another scooped out bagel. It is the epitome of customer service. <laughs> but that's important. Customer service is valuable. That's because you have a store. You have a museum. This is true. You have to provide customer, customer service at the museum. Yes, this is true. For sure. But I can't. I'm just, I, uh, all right. So in Philadelphia, you ordered your thing. You get kicked out of line. You get kicked out of the store forever if you ordered a scooped out bagel. Like, we don't scoop out bagels. Get out of here and never come back. Have you seen that happen? No, because no one would ever do that. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, to go back to the to the reliquary, um, you guys have a, a series of events that you do. I mean, you have the the Sugar Sweets Festival, and and you also have this thing called Collectors Night. Collect. Yes, uh, we're hosting this event called Collectors Night. It's like um, it's tape. It's sort of a flea market where things aren't for sale, and it's not. Uh, usually collectors, you you go and you meet about the thing that you collect. So we can right, record collectors get together. My dad gets together with other fire, other fire collectors. Exactly. So this is a, this is that, but the, it's, it's about the collecting part, not the thing that you're collecting. So if you have a marble collection, you're going to show off your marbles and you're going to talk to other people to collect things, but you're not going to talk to the other marble collectors. Uh, so, so it's like tabling. So you're, you're showing your collection off. Is it, is it curated or any collectors welcome? Uh, we have an application online at the website that you can fill out and join us and show your stuff off. In case it all ends up being all marble collectors, you don't we want it don't just to be want all marble, marble collectors. Event. Yeah, nothing against marble collectors, I don't think. But I think this thinking about starting a marble collection. I mean, I, having grown up in a in a collecting family, mm-hmm. um, it was always clear to me that that no matter what, there were collectors for literally everything. Yeah, exactly. There are people who collect. Everything you could possibly. So there's this. So the the stuff that the reason it really interests us, the the thing that brought me to the reliquary and this thing is. So we're collecting all this stuff, and we're essentially, if it's all just sitting in our houses and we're the only ones enjoying it, you're it's like hoarding. It's not really very healthy hoarding. Uh, so that we wanted to create a venue for this stuff to get out to see the light of day, which is which is healthy, which is actually good. So if you're sharing this stuff, if people are seeing this stuff, if you're sharing your love for this stuff, if you're, if there's a social aspect to the the act of collecting, it's, it's, it's actually very important. So we, we wanted to create a venue for that. So we, we have this thing called community collections at the reliquary. It's a small case and we feature collectors collections. Uh, like right now we have, um, an elephant collection up, you know, an old woman who was, she's passed, but her, her daughter gave us, lent us this collection of her elephants. And, you know, it was kind of a typical old lady collection. You know, she would travel and bring home an elephant. People started bringing her elephant. She was the elephant lady. So this thing has been sitting in, you know, uh, Diker Heights for 20 years on top of this piano since she passed away. No one's seen it. So it's it's great for us to get it out, and it's this it's sort of therapeutic for the daughter to get this stuff out and show it off and see the light of day, and people get to enjoy this stuff. Is collect is the collectors' night? Is it just the collectors who get to attend, or is it open to the public to come and do these to things? Open to the public, yeah. And when is it? So you can come check out the strange things that people collect. December second, we're hosting it at the Brooklyn Historical Society this year. Oh, great! There's and that's stuff. down in sort of Brooklyn Heights, right? Exactly, Brooklyn Heights, yeah. Great. And is that is there information up on it uh, about it on the website? Yes. There's good stuff on our website. Our website's not 
great, but the information for Collector's Night is correct. And that's at cityreliquary.org? Dot .org, yep. Great. Well, I think we're we're pretty much out of time here. But that's it. That's I think, it. I think that's it. I mean, we could go on for hours, but I think there's other shows that yeah, we could get we, into the studio. We would bore people, too. Um, but thank you, Bill, for, for coming on and thank you. Uh, spending your Wednesday Absolutely. with me in the middle of the day. Um, thanks for listening today. Did we talk about food enough? Uh, we'll let the we'll let the listeners decide. Okay, perfect. Because if we didn't, we, we're out of time. Right? Oh, okay. But, okay. I mean, no. that's it. We're okay. going to eat lunch after this. Oh, right? good, perfect. More food. Good. More food. Um, Thank you for listening today to Feast Your Ears. A big thank you to Kristen Baylor, who's my producer, uh, Liz Smith, who's the engineer. And take a moment to like the show on Facebook and iTunes and follow me on Instagram and Twitter. See you next week. for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.